Whether you're a crypto newbie, an established investor, or operating a business in Web3, tax season can be an absolute headache. But it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in. The software platform founded in 2018 by brothers Shane and Tim Burnett, crypto fanatics who were fed up with the complexity of doing their taxes. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, CTC focuses on simplifying complex transactions, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism, as well as 1,000 other integrations. Sign up at realvision.com forward slash CTC and get an exclusive 30% discount with the code RV30 at checkout. Hi, everyone. As you know, it's Education Month, and we are taking a look this week at personal finance. And we have James Altucker here to talk about it with us. And we're so excited about it. Hi, James. Great to have you back on with us. Maggie, great to be back on. And uh, I'm so happy you invited me. So when it comes to talking about building wealth and having a he healthy relationship with money, we couldn't have picked a better person to talk to because you wrote a or, book. Or a worse person. Or No, I say better because you it wrote a book. goes back and forth called Choose Yourself, Be Happy, Make Millions, Live the Dream. Yes, sign us up. That's what we want. But it's just seriously one of many articles and books that you've written sort of around this topic. And as we started, I'm just interested, what got you interested in writing about the personal side of finance? Because you, you've also managed a hedge fund. So, you know, you have a foot in both worlds. Why do you keep coming back to this subject? You know, it's a real interesting question because a lot of people who write about finance, they write about, oh, this is what's happening in the economy or Apple stock is a buy today. And they go on CNBC, buy Apple. Here's why you should buy Apple. And that's how I kind of started writing professionally. But then I realized kind of like around 2009, 2010, no one really cares about that. Like, okay, maybe there's a few people who should I buy Apple today? Like what's going on? And, but what people really care about is what's happening in their lives. And their lives are more complicated than a stock going up or down. And most of the time, and you know, we all experience failure in our lives, disappointment. We all experience those periods where it's hard to get motivated to get out of bed or, or we read about Texas and Iran and Ukraine and what's going on in the world is kind of depressing. And uh, uh, so sometimes personal, I don't like the phrase personal finance because it's all just personal. Like yes. how can we make our lives better? Finance goes along with that. Relationships go along with that. Creativity goes along with that. Health goes along with that. Just how do we improve our lives? So to this morning, I put my best step forward instead of not my best step forward. And then, so I started writing about that in terms of not like this is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do, but this is what's happened to me or this is what's happening to me. Like I've, you know, I, I've gone broke after being rich and then I made it back and then this, then that. I've suffered from depression or anxiety or, you know, fear when, when things aren't always going my way. And, and, you know, how do you move forward in those moments? And I would talk about my stories and I realized, A, I enjoyed writing about that much more. It felt more like real writing to me. And B, I found it, it, 10 X my audience, a lot more people needed to hear about these sorts of things than what's the latest AI website I should check out, which is interesting too, by the way, there, there's a role for that kind of writing. It just wasn't for me. Yeah. I, I think that, I think that touches on, um, something that we feel very deeply as well. And we also struggle with the personal finance side of it. It's sort of the bucket that everybody refers to, but, you know, part of our mission, we always say, is to give people the knowledge, tools, and network. And that network community part's really important so they can achieve financial freedom, right? It's, it is about, th these things can't be separated out. And it is super personal. And sure. we're all just trying to do our best. I mean, that's what we're trying to do and the best for our families. Right. And, and you think about it, why do people want to have, like you say, people want to know about personal finance so they can have financial freedom. But the reason you want to have financial freedom is because you might not like your job or you might not like the things you have to do for money. And maybe you want to pursue other things that are, are more interesting to you or, or more fun or, or something you're passionate about or, or something you, you would like as a, a lifelong goal. And 
we also just want to sleep at night without worrying. How many times have you and everybody listening to this woken up at three in the morning just thinking about what's in the bank account? I know for me, it's happened quite a bit. And I've always had to tell myself, okay, I wake up at three in the morning. There's nothing I can do about it. And so at these moments when I'm at, it's 3 a.m. and my mind is racing with all this stuff, I tell myself, okay, usually I'm not worried anymore during the day for some reason. So I'm going to make an appointment with myself for three in the afternoon to think <laughs> about these issues. And by three in the afternoon, I'm usually not as, as worried anymore. It's it's terrible, isn't it? I mean, you, I'm going to text you next time I'm up at three because for me, it's like 2.38. It's like at the same time every night. And sometimes it's about your own back. Sometimes it's about your kids, their future. What can you do to help them? I, 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 I don't care way? about my kids. <laughs> I don't care about your kids at all. Wait, how old are they? No, I, I care. I'm going to visit them next week. They're 21 and 24. Okay, yeah, they're right. They're right in that that area. That is, I think, when we worry the most, right? So you you just when 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 we were thinking about this and and inviting you to come on, you wrote somewhere, and this really sort of hit me. If you've ever been stuck in a job you hate, in a house you can't afford, in a life you don't want, in your own depressed mind, anything, I've been there. I want to help. Why do so many of us stress around money? Well, because money, money is the, the, the currency of, of freedom, as you say. Like, you know, when you have more money, you could, you don't have to worry about, oh my gosh, am I going to pay the mortgage next month? Am I going to pay the student loans? Am I going to pay, you know, for medical care or, or whatever it is? And then you could start to, to do things that you'd like to do. If you don't have enough money, the reverse happens. You need to, you, you really need to be creative and think of more ways to enslave yourself in exchange for money. Like, why does somebody pay you a higher and higher salary? They're not paying you to do the work. They're paying you to give up your dreams a little bit longer so they can make use of you. And for some jobs and in some industries, the price tags a little higher to give up your dreams. I mean, if, if they knew, if they knew you wanted to do this, they would pay you less. So, uh, you know, that's all often happens in very competitive industries. So, you know, we worry about money because, and also money is a little bit of a currency of self-worth in, in our society. We, it's a metric like mm. for how intelligent you are, how successful you are, how great you are. Like, look, you know, for, for since the beginning of mankind, it's kind of like a rich versus poor. And I'm not saying this in like a Marxist sense, but in a very capitalist sense that, you know, success is measured by how much you accumulate. And, you know, we, we have to fight that urge. Yeah, that not, is... nothing wrong with having a lot of money. In fact, that's been a goal of my life for my entire life. But we just have to put it in perspective. That this is where the relationship with money becomes very important and understanding it. So when you were young, you mentioned that you've you've made you've had money, you've gone broke, you've had money. By the way, we did a fantastic My Life in Four Trades um, with James. That was it, to this day one of my favorites, one of many favorites of those who've listened to it. You can find it yeah. where you find your podcast. I encourage you to go listen to it because it was a fantastic conversation. I think about it a lot still. But when you so when you were young and just starting out, what do you think was the biggest misconception that you had about money? I okay, that's that's an interesting question. I have to think for a second. Probably the biggest misconception I had was that I mean, I had so many misconceptions. It's like I'm trying to figure out what was the biggest. Maybe well, any biggest, of them. Give us give us any of them. Well, one is is that if you have money, then that means you're smart in everything. And so I, that was a big misconception I had. So I sold my first company in the 90s and I had a lot of money and I thought, "Oh my gosh, I'm the greatest person ever." And that means I'm smart in other areas. So I just started like doing things, you know, this is in the, in the late nineties or early old, I started investing. I was investing in private companies. I was investing in public companies. And I, it turns out I was not good at it, but I thought, oh, I must be the smartest person on the planet. I made all this money. And what ended up happening was, is I just ended up losing all of my money. In, in one summer, I lost $15 million and ended up with $143 cash in my bank account. I remember checking the ATM one day, there was $143 left and I was just going to walk in front of a bus. Like I hated myself so much. And 
it's a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing to have that kind of relationship with, with money. But I, I had to rebound somehow and I became obsessed with learning these rules of money. Like why I acknowledge that I was really bad at it. I was bad at money. There's three skills in money. There's making it, keeping it, growing it. And time and again, I've, I've made it, but then I wasn't able to keep it. And so I really had to learn how to keep it and grow it. And so I read every book on investing I could do, I could find. I learned every investing strategy. I wrote software to help me invest. And I was good enough that I was able to start a hedge fund and start writing about money and finance. And, you know, it's really important when you love an area, and I did love the area of investing, that you you learn everything about it, the history, the different techniques, you study the, the greatest who came before you, you, you know, computers are there to help you figure out what the patterns are that are consistent. And I find so many people, even like professional investors don't do this. They don't know like the basic history of investing, or they don't know, they might know value investing, but they don't know arbitrage or real estate or bond investing or commodity investing. You know, people kind of go in their small lanes, but you have to be very broad also before you get specific. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Whether you're a crypto newbie, an established investor, or operating a business in Web3, tax season can be an absolute headache, but it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in. The software platform founded in 2018 by brothers Shane and Tim Burnett crypto fanatics who were fed up with the complexity of doing their taxes. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, Crypto Tax Calculator focuses on simplifying complex transactions, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism, as well as 1,000 other integrations. It's as simple as connecting your wallet, pulling in all your transactions, and following the automated suggestions to quickly and accurately calculate your tax obligations. Finally, 2024 is a year when crypto investors can do their taxes with speed and confidence. Make taxes this year easy and affordable with Crypto Tax Calculator. Sign up at realvision.com forward slash CTC and get a 30% discount with the code RV30 at checkout. I think that's so wise and so true. And we do, we'll have people say like, well, I don't look at that or I'm not. We we see that divide between sort of the digital asset world and some of the newer technologies and some traditional macro. And we always think, well, especially, you know, so much happens at the intersection of everything that you do want to, yeah. it sounds like that's a real learning mindset that you have. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's by necessity. So like, for instance, you look at something brand new like crypto. Okay, there's a lot of people who speculate and trade around crypto. Oh, Bitcoin's crashing. Maybe now's the time to buy, or maybe now's the time to sell. But what, in a historical context, what does cryptocurrency mean for money? Like, what has been the evolution of money since 5,000 years ago and we were bartering? Oh, then it evolved to precious metals. Oh, then it evolved to IOUs for precious metals. And that became paper money backed by gold. Mm. Then it became fiat money. Well, now here we are 50 years after fiat money started. And what are the problems? What, how can we fix those problems? And you see the, then the natural, the natural way in which money is involved. So something like a cryptocurrency had to occur. And then you could judge, is it fulfilling the promise of that you know, evolution? And then you could decide, well, it's going to succeed because of that, or it's not going to succeed. Right. You have a more, a more historical point of view about it as opposed yeah. to a really. And way by the way, this holds for anything. Like if you yeah. play tennis and I don't play tennis, when you play tennis, how has tennis, you know, Arthur Ashe, John McEnroe, the tennis champions of the 60s, 70s and, and so on. They were like skinny twigs compared <laughs> to like the tennis players now are like jacked. So yeah, like, they're buff. Yeah. What, how has training evolved? You again, and if you were obsessed with tennis, you need to know the history. Right. You need to know how the training methods evolved, how have racket, how's racket technology evolved, how the rules changed, and on and on. Yeah, and the and and the shortcomings 
that led let the door open for pickleball. I know we had some strong feelings, I'm sure, about whether pickleball is ruining tennis or, or taking over the courts I, or not. But I, I haven't tried it, but it looks fun. Uh, it's, it's really fun. I think it's more accessible for people who, but you know, there are purists who, who don't like it, but you're always going to get that. I, I want to ask you this. You said something really interesting about your, you thought you were smart at everything. We talked about, you know, why is there so much stress, stress around money? There's a lot of shame around money too. Like if you do not feel like you are handling money well, it's hard to admit that, that there's a lot of shame around that society. Oh my gosh. There's so, I mean, look, I was going broke and I had, to, I was losing my house and I had to put my house up for sale kind of right after I bought it. And this is again, 1999 or 2000. And I remember one of my business partners came up to me and said, uh, at, at this time and said, Oh, we saw your house in the Sunday magazine. It was listed. And I'm like, Oh, that must be a mistake. Like I was so afraid of admitting that, like, oh, I was so ashamed. My my sister asked me, like, is your house for sale? And I'm like, no, no, it's not. Couldn't even tell my own family, you know, what was going on with me. Like I was so ashamed. So is 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 getting over that part of what helped you sort of get out of that bankruptcy situation? How how did you manage to what did you change in order to get on a better track for yourself once you once you lost it and you made the mistake about thinking you're the smartest guy in the room for everything what changed for you that improved that or helped sure. you grow it back like what was the thing that helped you get back sure and i think sometimes people are looking for like one answer like golden, oh i bought yeah, silver Apple bullet golden and, key or i went into the real estate business or whatever but really the key is is that Think about what your life is like when it's filled with worry and fear. You don't sleep so well. You can't communicate with your loved ones so well. You know, you might not exercise because you're so frantically worried. And you certainly don't take time to just be silent and surrender to what's going on. You don't enjoy yourself. So really, it gets down to, and it's going to sound like a cliche, but it really just gets down to fundamentals. Like, you've got to sleep well. You've got to eat well. You've got to exercise. You've got to love the people around you. Like you can't start a new business if you're arguing with your spouse all day. Mm. You, you, you've got to practice your creativity. Like people say, oh, well, I'm creative when I need it. No, creativity is like a muscle. You have to, you have to exercise it. It atrophies really quickly. So I started just by accident, really. I, I bought like a bunch of waiter's pads. Like I really like the design and look of waiter's pads. And I would go to a cafe every day. Every morning I'd wake up because I couldn't sleep. I'd wake up really early and I'd go to a cafe and I'd write down 10 ideas a day, 10 business ideas, 10 ideas for books I could write, 10 ideas for someone else. By the way, this started in 2002. I've been doing it ever since. Yesterday, someone emailed me and said they're starting a skateboarding business, but didn't know what to do. So I wrote down 10 ideas of how this kid could, you know, do a skateboarding business and sent it to him. Like you write down ideas for other people. And I found in a few weeks of doing this, that, oh, it really is like this muscle that you have to exercise. And I started feeling excited again for the first time in years. Like, it's almost like I stopped caring about the money because I got so much confidence that I could be creative and figure my way out of this. I was losing my home and I was being forced to, to move, you know, a hundred miles away to the cheap. I had no money. I had to go to the, I went from having the most expensive place in New York practically to, you know, being exiled into practically a trailer park. And we won't I, make you say where that trailer park was because we'll get some rage from whoever lives there. I'm sure it was a lovely place. Lovely, lovely. It was county. a lovely place. Actually. I, I miss it. But, um, uh, you know, I had to really be, it was that creativity that suddenly started creating opportunities for myself. It's like, it's like the Honda effect. Like when you buy a Honda, suddenly you start seeing, Oh, what's all these Hondas on the highway. I never saw this many Hondas on the highway. Suddenly, when you when you are exercising your creativity muscle, you start seeing opportunities everywhere. And that's what ultimately I was able to piece together enough opportunities to make a living again. And then I was able to piece together enough freedom to be able to start a business again and then sell that business and have money again. And of course, then I went broke again. But I knew that I was very upset, but I knew what I needed to do. And I started right. doing it and it, it wasn't your first again. rodeo with that. Yeah. So I want, I want to get to that, but th this, this issue of creativity has come up before. And I think it's very interesting. Is that attainable for most people? 
Because I think that there is a sense that you're a creative or, and, but I'm not. Do you think that we all have the ability to sort of gin up that kind of creativity, entrepreneurial spirit, whatever you want to call it, to be Definitely. able to do that for ourselves? Definitely. Again, it's, it's a muscle. And most of us, including me at that time, when I was lost all my money and was really depressed and thought I would never make money again, I, I had to reawaken. I had to exercise that muscle. Everybody's got that. Everybody could exercise it. Mm. Write it for me, writing just 10 simple ideas a day, not like a book's worth of ideas, a waiter's pad. You could just, it's like bullet points. Oh, he's going to have the hamburger and the fries and the Coke. Like you, you just bullet point things. So I would just, and it's funny coming up with 10 ideas. It's the first seven are always easy. Like yesterday when I was writing my idea list on the skateboarding business, after seven, I'm like, well, I must have 10 by now. And I count and it's only seven. And this happens every single day. And then eight, nine, 10, that's when you're really sweating. That's when you're build, you know, exercising that idea muscle. Every, just try it for like three or four weeks. And it's like, I don't benefit from anybody else trying. I'm not like selling notepads or anything. It's like, just try this idea and it, it works. It, you, you will feel excited. You know, so so I, I can write 10 ideas for real vision or 10 ideas for well, Google. We, we might, we might take you up on that, but, um, I, I love that. And you, it doesn't have, they, they can kind of be anything just to get going. Right. I love that. You said sometimes you write ideas for other people, because I think it's that blank page that freaks people out if they haven't done it. Right. They think, Oh, but you well, can put crazy. You gotta be able to too. write bad ideas. Like, like most of the ideas, if you're, if you're writing 10 ideas a day, that's 3,650 ideas a year. Most of them are going to 99.99% of them are going to be really bad. So just write anything down. Like they could be bad ideas. In fact, they're going to be bad ideas. The whole point is it's exercise. You don't do this to come up with the best idea. You do this to just become more creative so that it really is the case when you need those ideas, they happen. And, you know, writing ideas for other people, that's kind of where the opportunities are. Like I've written ideas and sent them cold to, you know, other companies. And the result was I've been invited to speak at, you know, Google, LinkedIn, Facebook, Quora, Twitter, because I would just cold send them ideas. Like one time I sent ideas to Amazon, this is around 2014. And they, they said, they wrote back and I just sent them cold. They wrote back and said, Oh, these are great ideas. Let us know next time in your Seattle. And we'll tell you what, we'll show you what we're working on. And I said, Oh, by coincidence, I'm going to be in Seattle next week. Now I had no plans to go to, I've never been in Seattle in my life. I had no plans to go to Seattle ever, but I bought a ticket for Seattle and I flew out there and I met everyone, you know, I needed to at Amazon. And then when I self-published a book later, uh, they were very eager to help me and promote my book and, and so on. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Wow. That, first of all, that's ballsy. And secondly, very interesting because Amazon tends to be a very sort of like, you know, productivity, efficiency based. So amazing that they answered your cold, cold email. I'm, well, they're, well delighted I delighted to hear that. That I, I sent hopefully ideas that they liked. And so yeah. that would improve their efficiency. So yeah, that that's, that's super inspirational. Um, so uh, when we're, when, when we look at where we are now, so you've been, you've been at this and you've been in the ups and downs. Is it our imagination or does it feel like it's getting harder to get ahead? It's, it's definitely our imagination. It's, it's easier than ever to get ahead. It was yeah. hard to get ahead, you know, 200 years ago when, you know, GDP rose 0% a year for 2000 years. And, you know, we had this kind of uh, more like a cast or surf, sort of system. And now there's, there's so many ways to get ahead. Like every new technology that's introduced gives you an opportunity to get ahead. Even if you're not an expert in that technology, like you don't have to be a programmer to use AI. You don't have to be a biologist to, to make opportunities for yourself in genomics. You don't have to be a dentist to run the social media sites of a, of a thousand dentists and build a business around that. Like there's, there's so many ways to, to get ahead and, and make money and be an expert on something and, and distribute that success. Like 
I was talking to this couple a, a few months ago. They love dinosaurs. So they started a newsletter and a YouTube channel around dinosaurs. And now they're making a living, a great living, focusing on something they love. Now, not everyone's going to do that. Not everyone wants to do that and put in the time and work for that. But there's always something you can do. And I'm not saying it's going to work overnight. It takes some persistence and consistency. But the other good thing is you could try many things and see which things are working. You could try many things simultaneously and see, and you could say, well, I don't have time for that. You do have time for that. Like I, I watch, I will admit, I watch TV three, four hours a night. So if there was something new I wanted to do, it was very easy for me to find that three or four hours. I just take it out of my TV time or, or whatever. Yeah. Sometimes that's the the fib we tell ourselves, right? That we don't have time or that the current situation you have is sucking up all of your resources. But if you really want to do it, uh, you can you can carve out the time. For for most of us who are doing dust jobs, I want to cut out some of those frontline kind of people who are really working two jobs to to make it happen. But um, so you, you in your book, you you say, or in, in, in a theme that often comes up also in the title of one of your books was choose yourself. What do you mean by that? You know, I remember one time my, my first job out of, actually I was thrown out of graduate school. So my first job after that, I worked at HBO, the TV network. And, and by the way, I was, at the same time I was offered, this was in the nineties. So you'll see the salaries. So I was offered 80,000 a year to work at JP Morgan. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to be rich. Like this is 80,000 a year. And then I was also offered 40,000 a year to work at HBO. I took the HBO job, even though it was half the salary, because I knew where I wanted to go in my life. Like I really loved HBO. I didn't love JP Morgan. Uh, I, so I started working at, at HBO and, uh, you know, I got so obsessed with, you know, I wanted to make a TV show. I wanted to be an entertainment and, um, you know, you, you just, sometimes you have to make sacrifices. Like here I sacrificed some salary, but then I started a, a company on the side. Like what the skills I was learning at HBO, I was making websites for HBO. I was able to start a company on the side. So again, I was working eight hours a day at HBO, then eight hours a day at uh, th this company. I had started building websites for other Fortune 500 brands. And over time, you just, you know, build confidence and build, mm -hmm. you know, strength in, in what you're doing and you, and you learn the skills and you learn, you know, you learn new things. You always have to be learning and always curious. And, and that's kind of how I started. So you chose to follow your instinct and your gut oh. about what you really, as opposed to just go for the trappings of what would have probably been pretty impressive to people that, you know, and your friends, if you landed a JP Morgan job. Yeah. I could have, I could have waited for, there's two things I could have waited for. I could have waited for somebody above me to keep promoting me and then eventually be a vice president and then senior vice president, then executive vice president, then maybe even more. And I could have gone that path, but then you have, you're constantly sitting and waiting to be chosen. And so instead I chose myself and I started a company rather than wait. And that really quickly sped up my career because then I was CEO of a company and founder of a company. Then I sold it and had money. And, and then I was going back to visit HBO and visiting the CEO who was eight levels higher than me when I was an employee there. And I'm Incredible. still friends with the guy. That must've been a there. wild moment. Yeah. And you know, the other thing is I was constantly pitching TV shows to them and they liked them, but you know, I would, I would shoot a documentary and then it wouldn't air. Like I was always waiting for them to bless me, for someone else to say, this guy is special. We're going to put his show on the air. And instead, now we're in a world where you can, I can shoot whatever I want and put it on YouTube. And then I've created a show. And in fact, um, somebody did do a documentary based on my book, Choose Yourself. It was like a docu-series of about eight episodes. And then the pandemic happened. He couldn't find like a big distributor. And I said, let's just distribute it ourselves. Let's just let's just put it on Amazon. And so now if you search for Choose Yourself, the TV show on Amazon, 
it's right up there along with all the Amazon Prime shows. Like we chose ourselves and didn't wait for anyone to to pick us to be special. Like you could just pick yourself to be special. That's so inspirational. So what what does that look like when you were in the middle of the kind of despair of having lost the money? We talked about how how your creative process helped sort of pull you out. But how do you yeah. choose yourself when you're now responsible for others? You're maybe a parent, you've got a mortgage. Like what does it, choose yourself look like in that stage of life? It, it's it's scary, but at the time, and sometimes it's out of necessity, nobody was giving me a job. Like everybody at that time thought the, this was this period when the internet bust, everybody thought the internet was a scam and I didn't really have any other qualifications. And, uh, and then I couldn't say, oh, well, I'm an investor. Cause at the time I just lost all my money investing. So, well, that hasn't stopped to, other people. <laughs> we should be James, but I'm no, happily, true, you were maybe, an, you were a moral soul not to do that. Which maybe is my problem a little bit, but uh, like I always have to be good at something before I could say I'm good. But uh, I had to really learn and learn quickly, and then I had to come up with ideas for other people. I would send ideas to hedge fund managers or, or people who wrote in finance. I would send somebody who wrote in finance, here's 10 article ideas you should write and I'll read them. Or to a hedge fund manager, here's 10 trading systems. Here's the software for those systems. I wrote it, happy to show you how they work. And I would do this every day. And sometimes people would write back to me. Like one person wrote back and said, hey, these are great ideas. Why don't you write these ideas for us and we'll pay you. So suddenly, boom, I found an income stream. Another person said, oh, these are great ideas for trading systems. How about I invest with you and you trade them? Boom, another income stream. And I was able to just build up from that. That's so, so, you, so you, were, you were not measuring what you were not. You were really leaning into what you had and what you knew you were good at or were trying to do. Yeah. And, and put that, that and out there to, into the universe. You have to move forward. You can't. I was spending too much time thinking, oh my gosh, I had won the lottery and then I blew it. Now what am I going to do? Like I was just, any time I started thinking down a negative path, I would say, okay, let's come up with more ideas for so-and-so, or let's find other places that where I could send ideas or other opportunities. And also I was day trading and finally I started to be good at it because I wrote some software to help me and, and it was a horrible market, but I figured it out. That was a good market to kind of learn in. And, you know, and then the same, same thing happened later is, uh, you know, I went broke again, uh, after selling a second company. And again, it was just a matter of, okay, what are ideas for, you know, different things I could start or books I could write, or again, trying to, to find opportunity where initially I thought there was none. It so sounds that, like no, no one was going to, no one was going to hire me. Like no one, no one was going to say, oh my gosh, it's James Aldisher. We better hire him. Like we, nobody. I feel like it, a lot of us have felt like that at some time in our life. And so I think that's going to really connect with people because we've, and there's, a, that's a horrible feeling to, to know that you have yeah. things to offer and people aren't, especially in this day of the anonymous resume, LinkedIn, when you're trying to change jobs or if you've been downsized, listen, we've just heard about all kinds of layoffs in the headlines recently, if you're trying to reboot, you kind of feel like you're throwing it into the digital abyss. You know, there's like nobody. So um, the idea that you can take some control over that, I think is is um, really hopeful, a hopeful thought. You know, we talked to, to uh, Jared Dillon earlier this week as part of this, and both of you seem to be coming at this from a his comment was, you know, people talk about in personal finance books, they're always telling you how to save money. You know, it's like, cut it out, save it, don't have the latte. And this approach about additional revenue streams or writing down these ideas and putting them out in the universe and looking for different is, is a different perspective. It's like one of abundance and, and more self-reliance, I think. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people kind of are split on this. You know, some people, you know, it really you know, somebody will like, my, my wife will say to me, oh, you know, the Starbucks adds up or the, the, the book you wrote or the hotel room you stayed in, it adds up. And it only adds up if you add it up. <laughs> like usually <laughs> you never notice it. You never notice this. That you, what, real, what really is a problem is if you 
you know, you can't afford a house and you spend $2 million on a house or you shouldn't buy a car and you spend $90,000 on a Tesla or whatever like that. Okay. You could only do so much, but really savings. And I try to teach this to my kids. They're, they're very much focused on savings. I'm like, no, no, no. Whatever you save now, oh, you're going to save $5,000 this year on a 60,000 a year salary. Whatever you save right now is trivial compared to what you're going to be making in just a few years if you build your skills and your network. Mm. So you're, you're $5,000 in savings that really cost you, you know, blood, sweat, and tears to save. Like you, you denied yourself, you know, that extra fun meal or night out with your friends or vacation or whatever, you know, it's going to be meaningless to you. $5,000. You're going to be needing to save, you know, a hundred thousand a year later, or maybe more, who knows? And so the 5,000 is meaningless. So yes, if you're about to go broke, try not to spend money. But most of, most of the time, we just want to have more money. So it's really important then to improve your universe of opportunities, improve yeah. your, your way to get lucky. Like, you know, you, you always want to have, you know, luck is sort of created by the prepared. So you want to create, create, increase your opportunities for luck. That might involve spending some money in some cases. This is an amazing scene in the movie. And this is a horrible example, but in the movie Schindler's List, you remember the movie Schindler's List? Yes, I do. I, I don't know where this is going, but I can't wait to see. <laughs> so Liam Neeson, who's playing Oscar Schindler, he's in the beginning of the movie, he's dead broke, but he basically finds all the money he's hidden, like cash in around his like dank room. And then he go, he, he gets the nicest suit and he takes all his money he has. He goes to the fanciest restaurant in Berlin where all the Nazi generals are hanging out. And he lives large, like he's a big, and in, in, he pretends to be this big industrialist. He gets the Nazi generals like hookers and buys their meals and gets them drinking. Next thing you know, he gets the deals to manufacture all the bullets in Germany. Like if he was worried about saving money before he went broke, he wouldn't have had all these opportunities. Horrible example, but that, oh, yeah. was, <laughs> interesting that was an example. interesting thing about, I mean, there's many interesting things. That was one Interesting yeah. takeaway. But I, that movie. I, I would also say the example you just gave um, of booking the flight to Seattle, right? I'm cr flying cross country is expensive, but if you hadn't done that and spent that money, then you wouldn't have met the people in person and it would have been a very different experience. Absolutely. And that was at a time I was still back in my accumulation Trailer. phase where I'd gone <laughs> broke a few years earlier and I still needed to kind of like build up. And my wife at that time was a little concerned. Like, are you sure you're going to just go to Seattle? It's like a thousand dollar round roundway ticket and you got to stay in a hotel and and like you cannot you cannot you have to have an abundance mentality it doesn't mean spend foolishly right it was i assumed my investment would pay off in the long run which it did uh you know sooner rather than later and i think that's the approach you have to take like i'm not just going to go and uh you know I don't know, go on a vacation to the, the Maldives or whatever for, for no reason. Usually when I spend money, it's, there's, a, there's a reason for it. I want extra comfort because I'm going somewhere on business or I want to you know, see some opportunity while it still exists. Mm -hmm. But you cannot deny yourself, um, particularly when it comes to small ticket items. Yeah, That's just too much of a scarcity. It mindset. is. And when you're and we talked about this when you when when you're living in that scarcity mindset and you're stressed out all the time, it kills creativity. It it, it yeah. the two things have a hard time coexisting. So um again, not to be frivolous about it, but you're investing in yourself and your ability to be your best self. Um, it's a different, it's a different mindset if you're looking at it from a budgeting point of view. Uh sort of a a slight change in subject, but if we're talking about investing in ourselves, I know a lot of the conversation we have, a lot of the, the things people worry about is the cost of college these days. How do you feel about that? I don't think you're a fan. Is that right? Right. And, and look, I think now it's a, a normal conversation to have, like, is college really worth it? I first started, I was a columnist for the Financial Times for many years. Like I, every Thursday, my column would appear in the print newspaper. It's, Soon we won't be able to say that at all. But uh, uh, I wrote in 2005 that college is just never worth it. And, mm -hmm. you know, right now you see this, that every, you know, not public schools like 
state schools, but almost every private school is like 60, 70,000 a year tuition. And, you know, from, from the, the, the smallest school in the middle of nowhere to Harvard, they're all around 70,000, 60 to 70,000 a year. And it's kind of ridiculous. Like college tuition has gone up faster than inflation every single yeah. year, not on average, but every single year for the past 70 years, tuition has gone up faster than inflation. And why is as, has our ed, quality of our education gone up, you know, an extra 5% per year? No. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that suggests quality of the education's gone down. And also there's this kind of, you know, mythologizing of, of, oh, college education really gives you opportunities to help you make money. Not if you major in something that ha- gives you no skills mm. uh, or there's nothing wrong. Like there's nothing wrong with majoring in English, but you can also just sit home sit at home and read a lot of books and then read the criticism of those books. And then you're going to learn more than what you'd have learned in an English major. So I, I think most educations you can get on your own. Um, I think college, you know, there's, there's so many examples. It's ridiculous. There's so many examples of people I know who didn't go to college or who dropped out. And then by the time that all their friends were graduating college with $200,000 in student loan debt, they have jobs, they have no debt. They have, you know, they're on their way to success. They're starting businesses. So, I mean, I could go on. That's a whole other topic. I, I once wrote a book, 40 Alternatives to College, and it was the number one book on Amazon for college books about college education. So yeah. people are people looking are for alternatives. That. Yeah, because it's just, it's it's hit the point where it's unsustainable. So I think for a lot of people, they have no choice but to explore the alternatives. But it's yeah, such a and, source and, of stress because we're just programmed here in the States to kind of think that this is the path to success. And look, school, we know school sucks. Like, why are we so excited about college? Like <laughs> nobody enjoyed school from first grade to 12th grade or, you know. Oh, I'm living that right now. This is my conversation every night around the kitchen table, the futility of it all. I, and uh, I think related to that is you got to be very careful too with home ownership because People think, oh, well, I own the home. I'm not going to flush money down the toilet by renting. But first off, let's say I'm just going to make up a number. Let's say you buy a million dollar home. First off, you got to put down at least 20%. So $200,000, that's gone. You had $200,000 cash, gone. And you're never going to get it back because if you sell the house, you're going to have to put down payment on the next house because you'll keep owning. And then you think, well, my mortgage is just x well whatever it is you know a million dollar house maybe the mortgage is like six thousand a month something like that i I don't know and but then there's property taxes which never go away you could have your home paid off but if you miss a payment on your property taxes they're still going to take your home away you never really own the home like the government will take it away either the bank will take it away first or the government will take it away then there's maintenance like you can't predict oh my gosh it's the summer and our air conditioning broke $12,000 to fix the air conditioning. So you never really can figure out all the costs, not to mention the interest on the loan. Like a million dollar house is going to end up costing you by after 30 years, like three to $4 million or more. And people don't take that into account. It's actually much in many ways from a personal finance point of view, not from, you know, we grow up thinking we need to own a home with the white picket fence. So I get that. And, you know, you need to set down roots for your kids want a nice yard in the suburbs, just harder to rent. Uh, doesn't matter. I, I get all that. But as from a personal finance point of view, it's, it's often better that money you would have put down. Okay. It's not a, it's nice to just have it as cash in the bank because then you can sleep well at night and you don't have to deal with maintenance, property taxes, you know, mortgages, anything else that could, could go wrong and, and your, your inability to move quickly because you now own a place. So if you get a job somewhere else, yeah. you know, you, you own. And so all of these other things, you can't really, you know, quantify what it means, but it's just, that that's another area where I would look. And I, I have kids in college and I own a house, so I don't always follow <laughs> my own advice, but, but there, but know. there's, there are choices. I think that's the message, right? That it you, it's not programmed that you must live in debt that you can't afford if that there are alternatives that are at least worth considering based on your financial situation. It may be that you move forward, but that, yeah. there, is, that there are choices if you're thinking about what's best for you, which is what your message is. I mean, look, the average salary 
used to be what, like 5,000 a year. I'm talking about like the early 1950s or 40s. And the, and the average house then might be, you know, 10,000. So two times your salary. Now, the, the average salary is about one-tenth the, the um, amount of the average house in the U.S. I think the average salary in the U.S. is like 48,000 a year and the average house is about 480,000 a year. So the, there's a reason why these numbers keep spreading apart because the institutions know that society has bought into this marketing fantasy that college is going to save our lives and owning a house yeah. is the dream, is the American dream. So they take advantage of that. College presidents know the government is going to lend 18-year-olds money. So they, they don't have any problem raising tuitions. The, the government's paying. The, 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 they have no fear because the students, the government backs the students and they guarantee the college president's money. College presidents take no risk. So it's all about, you know, where the risks are and what the incentives are. So you always have to look at that in any finance decision. Yeah. My son recently asked me, if I don't go to college, what happens to all that money? And I was like, you're ask smart questions. This bodes well. So, you you know, this these are all things you've learned through your journey. What should, how would you describe your relationship with money now? Since you've had it, lost it, had it, lost it. Where are you now? I think... And it's very hard to have this kind of relationship with money because society is programmed differently. But I think to myself, what do I really want to do with my life? What do I love doing? And in some periods, I have to make more money. In some periods, money doesn't matter as much because I've accumulated it or whatever. And it's really important for me to always do what I love doing, to choose myself, to choose what it is I'm going to try to succeed at and sometimes you have to do it when you have other things going on, like job related things. But sometimes you could, you accumulate enough money and you could do what you want to do. And I never think about where I am on the money hierarchy. Oh, I don't have as much money as some other businessman that I, we started out at the same time. He built up a much larger hedge fund. And I could think to myself, the guy's a criminal. How did he do that? But at the same time, he's doing what's for him. And I'm doing what I enjoy, particularly as you get older, you think, well, what am I going to really do if I have $500 million? There's nothing, there's nothing different I'm going to do. Like one thing I've noticed about money is that I always ask people, what would they do if they had a lot of money? And they say, well, if I had a billion dollars, I would do this, this, and this. And I say, you know, you can do all the things you just said with 10 million. Why do you need a billion? Well, don't you need a billion, you know, to buy a private jet for a hundred million? And I'm like, yeah. But for 500,000, you could, you know, be part of NetJets and just fly whenever you want on a nice big jet and you're okay. Like, what do you need? Why do you need to buy the Boeing 747 for? You're not Larry Page or <laughs> Elon Musk. Plus they crash all the time, those private jets. That's what I, that's my excuse. They do, what, they do crash more, but do you, okay. uh, do then you, you go to the Island of Lost after they crash. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Do you feel like you have, um, any fear around money anymore? Like, was the process of losing it a couple different times, losing a fortune a couple different times, did that free you up in some way? Or do you still get that, oh no, the the sort of gauge is running low again. I'm, I'm sort of burning through it. I got to make it back again. Yeah, I get, I get that fear. fear. Fear is healthy, right? Too much fear is not healthy, but fear is how we survived as a species. Oh, there's potentially a lion over there. Don't go over there instead of just ignoring the fear. Mm. And, you know, I think what the big thing, the big skill involved in keeping it, which is a skill I had to learn, keeping the money, um, is how to understand risk. So whether you're starting a business or making an investment or whatever, the idea is maybe 10% of the job. Oh, I have a great idea. The other 90% of being successful as an entrepreneur or an investor is understanding what are your risks, how are you mitigating the risks? Okay, a month passes. What are the new risks? Like you're constantly evaluating the risks. The idea is good, but you but then succeeding is all about understanding where the risks are. And you have to have a good sense of fear and but balance to mm -hmm. to to understand to be able to understand what the risks are and whatever you're doing. That's so wise. Do you feel like uh that your skill now at understanding the risk? 
is good enough that you can avoid another, like you think you're good. You think you visited that sort of bust and bankrupt enough that you, you, you that's it. You're done with that. I, I think so to some extent, like I remember before the pandemic, um, I did not necessarily predict the pandemic by any means. A lot of people was like, Oh, we saw this coming. But one thing I did see in January of 2020 was that China already was so afraid of this pandemic. And again, I didn't think it would hit the U S but I did see that China was closing all of their factories and just a minimal amount of research showed that, Oh my gosh, I didn't realize China is like 99% of our supply chain. Mm. They make all our clothes. They make our drugs for pharmaceuticals. They make our computers. They kind of make everything. So I was advising my friends who are in business. Look, listen, you might need to buy a year's worth of inventory right now. And some people thanked me later. later. Some people said, I wish I had followed your advice because the entire supply chain of the world shut down for a year. Again, I didn't think the pandemic would hit the way it did. I didn't think the economy would shut down. This is in January, 2020. But I did see that there was this big risk happening. I remember one night I was just up all night, kind of worried about these risks in not only my business, but other businesses. And uh, uh, I, think it's, I think it's a healthy, healthy thing. And I hope I never lose that sense of risk. Well, I hope so too. And I, you've had such an incredible journey, James, and so grateful that you take the time you know, throughout to share it and, and came on with us again uh, to drop some of that wisdom on us. We appreciate well, it. Well, thank you for having me on. And uh, I, I always like the structure of your show and you always get interesting things out of me. Like I really <laughs> like that. The last one also, the, you know, my life in four trades is such an interesting filter as a way to look at a life. And yeah. uh, you're, you're always creative at, at how you, at how you do these. Well, thank you so much. And um, I love that so much of what you talked about is so aligned with what we try to do. Um, and there's a way forward. And I love the hopeful message of it, you know, and I love the idea of choosing ourselves as a way to get to where we need to be with money and finances. It's a, it's got a hopeful message and we love that. So thank you so much. Thank you, Maggie. I appreciate it. All right. Take care, everybody. We'll be back later today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. At Real Vision, we arm you with the expert knowledge, time-efficient tools, and a powerful network to help you succeed on your financial journey. Get a taste of financial freedom with our free offer at realvision.com forward slash free.